Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Writers and Fighters. This is the podcast where I interview either a writer of some kind or somebody involved in combat sports. I'm your host, AJ Ortega, and today I'm going to recap the UFC 259 event from last night and also interview award-winning writer and bookstore owner Jennifer Mervin. Jennifer and I discuss why she started writing Uh, a little bit about her writing process and how COVID has affected that. We talk a little bit about a graphic piece she wrote and published in Anomaly, a literature journal. And we talk about the importance of place and home in her writing. Tells us a little bit about opening and operating Pagination Bookshop in Springfield, Missouri. And then we finish up with her telling us a little bit about televised boxing being present in her childhood. Speaking of boxing... Clarissa Shields fought over the weekend. She's a boxer, the best woman's boxer right now. And she's a two-time Olympic gold medalist. And over the weekend, she solidified herself as the greatest woman's boxer because she has two undisputed titles in two weight classes. Undisputed meaning she has all the big belts in those, in those divisions, the WBA, WBO, WBC, IBF. And there's a conversation about the lack of competition for her. She won a, a decisively in a decision, and so there's not a lot of not a lot of women left for her to fight in the boxing world. She's just that dominant. There is conversations about her moving into mixed martial arts, which I think is really interesting and probably the move right now. She's under contract with Professional Fighters League, and I guess they're trying to have her fight in June. I don't know if that's still the plan, to be honest. Professional Fighters League used to be World Series of Fighting, and they do like that weird point system, kind of like a tournament, and there's like seasons. It's odd, but it's a good place to start. There's people that start their careers there, then folks that end, end it there as well. Um, but high caliber people up there in their uh, latter stage of their careers, like Anthony Pettis or Rory McDonald, come to mind. So, you know, it's a legit organization and is probably the right move for somebody like Clarissa Shields coming from the boxing world going into the MMA world. You don't want to just throw her into the UFC with the Sharks because it's a completely different sport, though she has a tremendous base for it. Last year, I saw that she was training at Jackson Winklejohn, which is where John Jones trains and also where Holly Holm trains which I think is, again, super smart because Holly Holm, great MMA fighter, but a tremendous boxer, again, a world champion boxer herself, that was able to make the transition into the MMA world, ultimately going into the UFC. And we all know what happened when you know she beat up Ronda Rousey and really just kind of changed the game there. And so I can't think of a better camp that has an example of somebody moving from boxing into the MMA world and having such success like Holly Holm has through Jackson Winklejohn. And so that's the right move, I think. And and also Holly Holm didn't just jump into the UFC. She didn't. She did regional promotions, a Bellator fight before she joined the UFC. And so I think that's the smart move career-wise, 
is to kind of get your chops in some of these maybe mid-tier kind of leagues and organizations and then move into, you know, wanting to fight for the UFC eventually. I think that's a real possibility. And mostly, again, because she's, Clarissa Shields is 25 years old. So I think that's, a, I just want to address her win and her dominance in boxing and that conversation of where's the competition. Well, as we know in combat sports, a lot of the competition has gone to mixed martial arts. And especially for a woman in boxing where the women in boxing just don't get promoted. We know that. Clarissa Shields has gone on record complaining about that. You can just Google it. And it's true. And UFC 259 featured you know, one of the best women's combat athletes to ever walk the planet in Amanda Nunes. And so there's money there that there it's possible to market women's fighting at the level of men's fighting. Boxing doesn't have their stuff together. Mixed martial arts is is doing a good job. Still room to grow, of course. But when you have somebody like Amanda Nunes being one of the best combat athletes, period, like there's the proof. Like it can be done. There is a demand. There are qualified women that are amazing at what they do. And so I, I think that's a promising move for Clarissa Shields and would like to see what her MMA career looks like. Speaking of MMA, let's move into the UFC recap. Just going to recap the last three fights because they were the championship fights, although there was a whole bunch of other good ones in the undercard and prelims. So in the Aljamain Sterling versus Pyotr Jan fight, uh, that one was a weird one. It ended in disqualification, and Sterling won you know, by disqualification and ends up getting the belt under really you know, not ideal circumstances. First time that's happened the title changing hands through a disqualification. At the beginning, I was impressed with the referee until I wasn't. Uh, Mark Smith. I was actually about to tweet that he was in on the action and giving good, clear vocal warnings and reminders throughout. It was just, I thought he was doing his job and he was on it. Little things I noticed. But at one point, again, this is like round round four, the moment of the disqualification happened something like this. So Sterling is crouched at one point, and he has a knee down. And so the referee, Mark Smith, says, you can hear him, he says, down, or he says, he's down. He, he says that out loud, so Pyotr Jan is aware that he can't do certain things to a grounded opponent, a downed opponent. Pyotr Jan is standing, Aljamain Sterling is grounded, crouched, knee on the ground, for several seconds. And to understand the grounded opponent thing, some people get confused with the, it used to be like three points of contact on the ground. That's no longer true. The, the, the unified rules were updated a few years ago. I actually tweeted uh, a link and also put a link on the Riders and Fighters Facebook page to a video, a video from YouTube where Big John McCarthy, referee, and helped write the unified rules and update the unified rules. He explains that downed opponent thing. It's a five-minute video. I won't... He's downed. Having your knee down is one of those changes. It's not the three-point... Three points of contact on the mat. It's no longer that. So it's an interesting video just so you can have that context. So take, take a look at that if you need further explanation. But in any case, Sterling is downed. And it's... For several seconds, there's this weird moment that he knows he, he can't get attacked in certain ways. Like, you can't get kicked or kneed when you're, when you're downed, when you're a grounded opponent. And so you hear somebody at cage side say, only punches, because Sterling is on a knee. 
And Pyotr Jan's corner says, only punches. So I think Pyotr Jan is going to tee off on him, like with his fists, which would work. Jan can be heard saying, I kick, question mark, right? I kick, question. you can hear him question. He says it out loud because his corner can hear, there's no crowd, right? And as he's just pushing down on Sterling's head, while Sterling is crouched, again, to kind of control his head and his head and neck, right? He's controlling him. And, and just as he's pushing down Sterling's head while Sterling is crouched to control his head, you know, Pyotr Jan is holding Sterling's head down, and he says, I kick. But then you hear somebody say, yeah. And Jan just knees Sterling in the head and just about knocks him out. He's done. He's concussed. He's not blacked out, but he's not there. He's knocked goofy. Fight's over. But the fight isn't over. The ref takes a moment to talk to him. He t- calls for a break in the action. Sterling is rolling over. He's He just got kneed in the head at full force. Okay, And the referee talks to him, then the doctor, and waits about three minutes before he calls the fight over due to an illegal strike. And it's an intentional foul because the referee said down. He said he's down which means you wrestle the guy, which means you can punch him, but you cannot kick him. You cannot knee him. And so I thought that was irresponsible of the ref to kind of be like, well, can he continue? Or Because we saw that happen with uh, John Jones and Anthony Smith. Again, that one was, was just way less egregious. I, I think it was a, a problem there, but this was clearly a downed opponent, announced and a downed opponent, and was still need in the head. The referee should have DQ'd him in about five seconds. You know, once you go and look over at Aljamain Sterling and see that he's not there, he's not even on this planet anymore, you got to wave off the fight. Pyotr Jan loses by disqualification. And so unfortunately, this means that the title changed hands. So Sterling wins the belt on a disqualification. Pyotr Jan said that, you know, they told him to kick, so he did. The commentary team said that Khabib Nurmagomedov was at ringside, and he, he heard and told the commentary team that his corner said to kick him in Russian. But I don't know if that's true or a misinterpretation or something because I saw some YouTube comments on this stuff, and some people were translating the Russian or trying to, right, Russian speakers. And they said the translation when they are yelling at him was something more like hit him or beat him or strike him, which can be you know, interpreted for punching or kicking. But in any case, like he should know, Pyotr Jan should know the rules. They go over the rules with translators in the locker room so you know what the deal is. And so he should know the unified rules of mixed martial arts in the USA because if you want to kick or knee a grounded opponent, there's places you can do that. Brazil, Russia, Japan, which have different governing bodies for the rules of mixed martial arts in their countries. But here you can't kick a down opponent. That's the rules. And so I, I think it's still on him. You can't put that on your corner or what you heard. Like You're the fighter there in the ring, in the cage. So that was an odd fight, an odd one. Next fight was Amanda Nunes versus Megan Anderson. And going into this, I thought Megan Anderson might have a little bit. I, I was still picking Nunes to win, but Megan Anderson's from Australia, and the podcast has a little following in Australia. So I was like, I wouldn't be mad if Megan pulls up some weird upset She's a big girl. Megan Anderson is big for she's a true featherweight, one forty five. 
if, like last year or year before, she did a, one of her weight cuts was like a legit twenty five pounds. Like she's big. She's six feet tall and strong and long. And I thought she might give her trouble with this reach, these kicks, the power. But it wasn't that way. Nunes just dominated Megan Anderson. It took what, a minute or two. Stunned her with the right hand, got her down, hit some ground and pound, got a armbar, a straight armbar, and then moved into a reverse triangle. And Anderson had to tap. She was not. There's no way she was going to escape. She was just going to tap or pass out. So she didn't provide any opposition. Uh, Nunes was just totally steamrolled her. Totally did. Uh, the next fight was the main event: Israel Adesanya and Jan Blachowicz. Commentary on this one was biased. It was bugging me. Like I think Joe Rogan needs to retire from commentary, and he should be replaced with Rashad Evans, Michael Bisbing, or Dan Hardy. I think Michael Bisbing is 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 the one to go with. Great talker, great personality. Usually calls it right down the middle. For example, at one point, Joe Rogan was saying that Blahovich was getting outstruck by Adesanya. And the way he delivers, like, it's the audience will accept this, right? Or he's the dominant voice on there because he has the most experience broadcasting versus Daniel Cormier and John Anik. So at one point, Rogan says that Blahovich is getting outstruck by Adesanya. And there's a graphic on the screen that says the opposite. That Blahovich was not getting outstruck. He was outstriking Adesanya in volume and accuracy. You know, num- you know the, the the numbers of punches and the percentage that land. And so, and the fight was a clear win in my eyes for for Blahovitz. So Izzy tried to go up one division and wasn't able to successfully. And there's a reason not everybody can be Amanda Nunes. Like she's 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 there's very few double champs or champ champs as they call it in the UFC, and only one person has ever actively defended two titles at the same time, and that's Amanda Nunes. She's on a twelve fight win streak. Israel Adesanya is great, but it just proved that not everybody can move to another division and dominate another division. It's it's hard, you know. Even the double champions that there have been have never actively defended the two titles at the same time. And so Nunes is on a 12-fight win streak. Nine of those are championship fights. She's defended her 135 bantamweight belt five times and the 145 featherweight belt twice. She's the best in the world in two women's MMA divisions. And I would say she's easily the current best pound-for-pound MMA fighter in any gender, any organization, at any weight on the planet right now. Speaking of champions, speaking of champions, I consider my next guest a champion at writing. Jennifer Mervin is a writer, a teacher, an independent bookstore owner. We're acquainted online through the writing world for a few years. And I've always admired her work, so it was nice to sit and have a conversation with her. So thanks for listening to the recap so far, uh, and I hope you enjoy this interview. All right, y'all, I'm joined here by Jennifer Mervin. Jennifer Mervin uh, works over at Missouri State University. She's a writer. Uh, one of the reasons I asked her on specifically is that she writes all sorts of stuff, not just one genre. Jennifer, thanks for coming on board. 
Oh, thank you so much. I'm so thrilled. Thank you. Yeah. And so, again, I've kind of observed your writing for a good while now. I don't I don't know how long. Uh, you know, one of your store one of your pieces came through a journal I was working on and so we became like friends online, one of those writer friends yeah. we had, and we kind of see you from a distance. But really that I love those friends. <laughs> <laughs> and so now I'm just like hitting them up for interviews and stuff. And so <laughs> Um, and so one of my big questions is, because I don't know you, like, how did you come to the writing thing? Like, writing in, like, a serious way. Yeah, it was, it came later for me. I, um, I have, I've always been a reader and um, just stuck in a book constantly. And still am. Reading is the most important thing in my life. <laughs> you know, next to, of course, my child, <laughs> um, uh, who I keep trying to get to read more, too. But yeah, I, I had a very kind of meandering journey educationally. I, you know, started out um, at a small liberal arts college, um, wanting to be an elementary school art teacher because I've always loved art and um, always loved being around kids. And especially the way that kids approach art was always so inspiring to me because there's this just this beautiful expression of joy. There's no self-consciousness about the way that kids do art. And so being close to that always made me feel so inspired. Um, And then I kind of moved away from that and, you know, thought, okay, I'll be a high school English teacher and then kind of moved away from that. (laughs) And then eventually um, sort of got my degree in creative writing because that was sort of the quickest degree I could do in undergrad at that time. And I sort of graduated without an idea of what I wanted to do. I had taken a couple of writing classes and I had published a short story as an undergrad, but I, you know, I just kind of floated around a little bit and um, I landed this amazing job out of undergrad writing educational comic books with um, the Chickasaw Nation. It was a grant way back in the early 2000s that uh, gave the Chickasaw Nation sort of this chunk of money to develop educational materials for the kids and so I wrote these educational comics, and um, that was a great gig for me for about three years. And when the the grant ran out and that project sort of ended, I decided to go back to graduate school. And um, that's that's kind of when I started writing more seriously. You know, I had always read, and because I was such a reader, I just was so I'm always so moved by books and literature. And in grad school, I was introduced to you know just more experimental writing. Um, I had a great teacher, Brian Shaver, who's a beautiful novelist, and he actually has a great craft book. He was just instrumental in kind of opening my eyes to some different literature that I hadn't really read. Um, so yeah, that's kind of, that's kind of my weird <laughs> little way into, into yeah. writing. Yeah, well, well, good writers have that that weird path to get to where we are or else what the hell do you have to write about? Like right? having that straight path to like go to school and then, and then become a writer. So all you have to write about is, I don't know, going to school and hanging out with other school. writers. I don't know. And so, yeah, yeah I like that. And, and the, the yeah. beginning of what you talked about that you had worked with, um, uh, you wanted to be like a art teacher with kids and because of their yeah. creativity, you know, I've, I yeah. did some like creative writing workshops with like thir- a third to fifth grade and they were my, they're the best poets. I mean, like, no, yeah. no, no, no poet can touch them. I'm sorry. Like, it's just like they're, they're just 
they haven't been taught, like, well, this is what a poem can't be, or whatever weird stuff yeah. we come up with as writers and the instruction that we get. But that that creativity is almost limitless. Uh, so I, I admire that. I I, I kind of miss getting in front of the, the little little kids. High school, not oh, so much. You know, high school, not so. Much. <laughs> Um. <laughs> well, yeah, it's like there's some there's some point in time, and I think it's it's different for each kid. But you know, they do they start having this awareness of other people's opinions, or you know, Linda Berry calls it the two questions: Is this good? Does this suck? <laughs> you know, and it's like she has that great essay where she sort of talks about the moment that those two questions entered her life. And now it's just a constant battle against those two questions. And then she's constantly striving to get back to that innocent, just generation of art for art's sake, or just, you know, creativity for the fun of it in the moment and not thinking about, because it is so hard. You get caught up in this idea of, you know, is what I'm writing good? Is it maybe going to be published? Are people going to like it, you know, approve of it? So, yeah, I've always been so inspired by kids. And, you know, my son is 13 now. Um, and when he was little, he I just loved watching him draw and write. And I always teach Naomi Shihab Nye's um, poem, One Boy Told Me, which was is one of my favorite poems. And it's just a collage of yeah. things that kids say that are, you're so right. It's so poetic on accident. <laughs> it's just my favorite. It's my great regret that I just didn't write down every single thing that Ethan said <laughs> growing up. <laughs> and so that I came to that poem too late. <laughs> <laughs> that point of like not worrying about what's going to be the end. You know, you're in first, you're in step one to create something, to be creative, yeah. creation. And so you're in that first step and kids don't give a shit. They'll just do it. Whereas yeah. I'm like, I can't put a word down unless it's going to be the right first word. And I'm just there looking at my computer for an hour. So yeah. for you, like what kind of stuff, maybe it's reading, maybe it's other stuff. What helps you with that creation and invention part of your own work? Definitely. Yeah, definitely reading. I always read before I write because it just gets you into the language of writing, you know, which is different than coming just from a conversation or, you know, from listening to a podcast or, you know, watching a movie or something. So I always try to open with reading, which I find helps me a lot. <laughs> it gets me in like this trancey space. Sure. Um, and then I mostly work from prompts. So I really like if I am just sitting down and I have all the subjects in the world at my fingertips, all the styles in the world at my fingertips, I find that very paralyzing. So I really love to sit down with a prompt that's very specific. So if it's, I'm attempting a structure that's similar to something that I read that I really loved or a point of view approach or, you know, some, something like that, um, that really helps me. And I am taking a poetry class for the first time this semester um, from a colleague, Marcus Cafania, who's wonderful. And it's really fun with poetry because I think with poetry, you do that so much more where you maybe follow like a like a formal approach and then the invention kind of happens within those strict parameters. I don't think we do that as much in prose. I mean, I certainly do. I've sort of self-imposed that and then I impose that on my, student, my students. <laughs> yeah. Because um, that's sort of the way that I find writing happens best for me. So I write along with my students less now that I teach online, which I'm finding a little upsetting in person when I would have my students write in class, I would always write and something would always, if I start something, I tend to finish it. 
so that was always really helpful for my writing life. I've had to reimagine that in the last year. The last year has been very hard for me to write anything. And so your writing process, you said, is mostly through prompts. And, and again, to give me a little bit yeah. of a limit, a little bit of a parameter to operate within, right? And there yeah. lies, like, mm-hmm. you know, once we get, I don't want to say once we get good at this, but once we have enough experience at this, I always tell my students, I was like, I'm not a better writer than anybody here. I just, I've just been doing it longer. Like, Yeah, we got the I, years behind I was us. like, I just yeah. put in more time. You put in this much time, you'll catch up to me. Simple as that. Um, yeah, but, and think how many more years we've had to read, you know? All That's that. all feeding, feeding us. Every time. Yeah. That's the beautiful thing about being a writer is you just get you, the age aging just helps. <laughs> yeah, for what sure. Can you, what else can you say that about? <laughs> right, right. Exactly. That, yeah. that, I mean, I'm always very skeptical and there's great books by young authors, but there's lots of them. Where I'm yeah. like, you're that young and you put out this, this, this kind of a book, like what, you know, and, and so I'm always kind of curious and skeptical of it, <laughs> um, which is unfair, but whatever. Um, and so you mentioned that things have gotten harder. So one of my questions yeah. here is uh, like, how's COVID affected your writing? It's affected all of us in a number of ways and we could go on and on, have a three hour podcast. But what about writing yeah. specifically, writing? I think just, yeah, the disruption of sort of, and I've always been kind of right where you're at, you know, I mean, I've, I've moved a lot. You know, I had a young child, you know, I had had my son when I was 26. And so, you know, that was kind of at the very early years of my writing life. And so, you know, I kind of just, I always felt sort of proud of myself that I could kind of write on the go or be flexible in my writing. Um, but yeah, this past year, I don't know. I think I, my mind is just very, it wanders a lot more. I've even had to had a harder time focusing on reading in the last year, which is very weird for me. Thankfully in the last couple months, I feel I've been able to kind of get back to my normal way that I read. So yeah, I've, I've had to sort of force myself to do it more than I normally would like, you know, say, okay, today, this afternoon, I'm working on this. I was very fortunate that at the beginning of this month, um, a friend of mine solicited an essay for the essay daily feature it's and it was um it was part of their midwest essay series so writing about you know being an essay teaching or reading or writing the essay in the midwest and what does that mean to you and it was really good to have like a very again a very specific prompt it had to be short <laughs> it had to be about writing about the midwest and it was due in a month nice and so something about that just i wrote you know and it felt so good i finished something you know, I really worked on it hard, like every afternoon, I was very focused on it. And so I think that's the way I'm going to have to do it from now on is just really kind of impose some deadlines on myself. And, you know, normally my classes will do that for me. But teaching online is just a little different. You know, yeah, it's very strange. Yeah. And so I've observed my own weird issue. And it's concerning to me that like, I can't read as effectively. And it's just a fact. And I actually was dealing with that uh, before this pandemic crisis. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm like, I read and write for a living how, and I teach it. And and it's probably the only reason I can still do it. But, like, there's, like, this writer's block. But I've developed this weird, like, reader's block where I, it's hard for me to get. I, I just can't. It's, 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 it's quite difficult. And I'm like, I'm trained mm-hmm. at this. I'm good at this. My students must be drowning when it comes yeah. to, like, focused reading. Something as simple mm-hmm. and fundamental to their college and our lives, 
It's, right. it's, it's a nightmare right now. <laughs> I can't yeah. lie. Yeah. Yeah. And I've, you know, I've kind of pivoted some of my reading myself and with my assignments to my students to listening to podcasts, you know, okay. which I think is great and listening to audiobooks, you know, which maybe can help and maybe they can do it while I'm just spending a lot more time at home, obviously. So, you know, I find myself cleaning more or, you know, walking the dogs more. And so just kind of trying to feed my brain with, with that in different ways and trying to find new ways to just get that material in. Yeah. So yeah, trying to diversify that. I've tried a little bit of that too with my, with my students, instead of doing like, Oh, we're going to read like four articles this week. It's like, well, let's read two articles and watch a Ted talk and listen to an interview. Right. Yeah. Uh, and a pot or a podcast, yeah. these kinds of things. And I'm like, language is language. English, as yeah. much as we're like, yeah, we're the arts and all this stuff. We are. But we're also in the field of communications. It's not live. Yeah. Right. And it's, this is fundamental stuff. Um, so, yeah. yeah. And so my I, I, right now, me, me too. I, I Every book I buy in the past like six, seven months, I buy the book, hard copy. Then I mm-hmm. also buy the audio. And I buy every yeah. book twice now because I have to hear it as I read along. <laughs> And it helps. Yeah. And I'm sorry, it helps. I, I'll, it I'll, help. I'll do whatever I need to, 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 to compensate right now. Yeah, it does help a lot. And I just, I love that we live in a time where, you know, we can watch writers that we love and admire give interviews and easily just, you know, search them and watch lots of interviews on YouTube or listen to a long interview on, on being, you know, <laughs> sure. it's like incredible to have this, this resource. And then I think that that helps students invest more in the books because um, they get maybe a little bit more context or they really connect with the person, you know, the author themselves, which I've, I'm finding more and more is important to my students. Yes. So, yeah, I think like, especially if the writer themselves is reading the book, I think that's an extra bonus. Oh yeah, that's great. So I know that's not always the case because yeah. they have great audiobook actors. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and some of them are great, and some of them are like you know not so. But there's some yeah. that are just tremendous. I was like, this is a yes. great, great storyteller just reading me a good one. I was gonna say too, like something about writing in this time. I found myself writing shorter form things. Okay. So like more flash, and then I decided one of my, one of my reasons for taking this poetry class this semester, which is kind of unusual for me. I haven't really in a full semester of teaching mode, like added a class that I'm taking on my own. Um, but part of it was to just get me writing more. So I'm sort of just finding ways to sort of get myself into it. And so taking a class again has been sort of helpful because I'm, you know, those built in deadlines and you have to produce. Yes. They're built in deadlines or expectations. I want, you know, I want to do well And so, yeah, like these, normally I teach at um, a really beautiful writing community called the River Pretty Writers Retreat. I've taught with them for, oh gosh, like 10 years. Um, We have a a retreat twice a year down in Tecumseh, Missouri, like deep in the Ozark woods, like by the White River. It's so beautiful there. And so normally twice a year, I have these three-day weekends where it's all writing prompts writing workshops, guest lectures, and I just sit and I write and I get all these great ideas. And I, I haven't had that. We had to cancel our April, 2020 retreat, our fall retreat and our spring retreat this coming spring. And I didn't realize how important that twice a year sort of three day chunk. And I always teach it that too. So I'm always kind of prepping and that, you know, that helps me write too. 
that was all gone. And so I, I think that I hadn't really recognized the importance of that just twice a year, little three-day thing. I mean, it was not, it's not a huge long period of time, but it's very intensive while you're there in like this really inspiring way. And I, I think that that's affected me. I got kind of used to that for 10 years. I got very spoiled. <laughs> well, that's a, you know, that's a, if you did it for that long and a couple of times yeah. a year, that's a pretty frequent routine for something quite unique. Cause you know, as well yes. as I do. And I tell my students that want to be writers that like want to do it for real. I tell yeah. them like, uh, it's hard to have this environment again, where we all kind of want to write and we're all reading each other's stuff. And, and I was like that. You have to seek that out, like once you you're out of this academic system where we teach you writing and uh, you're off on your own. Also, you got to find these opportunities in retreats and workshops, like like the ones that you participate in and teach. So I think mm-hmm. that, and again, you benefit from that too because it keeps you plugged into totally. that thing that we're supposed to do. Yeah, yeah, it it is. It's such a connection, and yeah, I mean, every and we have kind of a core group of writers that are always sort of the core faculty. And I'm very fortunate enough to be part of that core faculty. But then we bring in guest authors in every genre. So we have, you know, every time it's this new idea, it's this, you know, new writer, a new way of teaching. And I get to sort of watch all of that unfold and be in that community. And yeah, I really miss it. I can't, I really am hoping we can get back for fall. And yeah, you should come, you should come down for that sometime. I think you'd really love it. It's one of those, I I do want to do a little bit more of that, that kind of stuff. Uh, Again, for my my, group of people, you know, for, yeah, I, I, yeah. Cause again, cause I, it's hard for me. I got my, my friends and readers and stuff and relationships and everything like that. Um, But again, the, okay. Fresh eyes, that environment, like it's one of those things like, I got to be a student again. Like I'm feeling that in me. Like I got to be a student again with the writing thing. I'm going to join a boxing gym soon again, just because I'm like, I oh, need to be, I, I, like I need to be in the position to be a novice because in, in yeah. front of our students, we're not right. Like that's, and that's such a big chunk of our lives. And so yeah. I was like, I, but I still consider myself quite a young writer, quite young in my career. Uh, oh, yeah. And so Same. I'm like, I'm, <laughs> I'm still a beginner. So I need to go continue to develop. And so opportunities like that are quite interesting to me. So and so poetry, you also do fiction, but then you do graphic storytelling. I think all prose writers should read poetry and vice versa, you know, all that stuff. I think they borrow from each other, give you certain skills. But graphic storytelling there is less of that there, you know, there's less emphasis on that kind of stuff in undergrad and, and master's programs and, and so on. Is there a bunch of research and academic stuff and people doing great things? Yeah, sure. But it is a little bit more unique than the people we run into in our circles. So tell me about the graphic yeah. storytelling thing. Cause I'm a fan of that stuff. I like, for example, like uh, Leslie Marmon Silco storyteller yeah. has photographs in it. Like what it would. Yeah. And, and then uh, uh, Frederick Luis Aldama has a book, uh, long stories cut short that has, artwork in it picked up a poetry collection uh w todd Kaneko's uh dead wrestler elegies and there's like cartoon artwork of like the wrestlers he's writing about i'm trying to write a photo essay and so i'm super curious about because you do it well and i want to talk about a specific piece in a moment but but tell me about that graphic storytelling you know, I, again, like came, I came to it late and kind of in a surprising way. I always loved graphic narrative. I loved graphic novels, graphic memoirs. I just found it very moving and exciting to look at. It's just beautiful and interesting. My son, 
you know, the first books that he really loved were all comics. I mean, he still reads Calvin and Hobbes. That like, is. I'm like, our Calvin and Hobbes book is beat. To, it's just like falling apart. That's good. It's so beautifully loved. And there's just something so attractive and appealing to me about reading it. It's challenging. It's different. And yeah, like if you broaden sort of your sense of what graphic narrative is, it's any kind of combination of text and a visual. So yeah, like photography, collage, illustrations along with your text. Maybe it's not like a traditional sort of, you know, paneled graphic narrative, but it has visuals and that creates a different kind of reading experience. This all excites me. I really love hybrid works. I love things that are just interesting and creative as a prose writer, I'm always drawn to borrowed forms, and which has a very close relationship with graphic narrative in my mind. I taught it a lot. I started a comics program uh, where I teach. I started a comics class. It was just introduction to graphic narrative. And we just did, we just wrote and read. And then um, I partnered with uh, my dear, dear friend, Cole Closser, who started teaching at Missouri State, who's a cartoonist. And we proposed a interdisciplinary comics class where we both teach it. And it wasn't like I teach writing one day and he teaches art one day and we like really separate it. It's like all our kids are in the same classroom. We both teach every day and just really highlight how everything is very integrated. It's not art over here and writing over here. And it's not the writer's right and the artist. Nicole always says the writer's right and the artist's art. <laughs> like we're not doing that. Like everyone has to do it. Everyone has to do their own. And so I thought if I'm making my students do this, I have to do one myself. And I had, I've always drawn, I've always done artistic things, but I had never really tried my hand formally at like illustrating something that I had written. And so I did it. And um, it was really terrifying and hard and it took me a hundred years uh it's a long oh my gosh cartooning is hard um just the just the sheer amount of hours you spend on this short short piece but I loved it and now I can't really can't stop doing it I'm working on a much longer graphic essay right now that's um about 10 pages and uh it's a longer piece that I've been kind of working on through the quarantine very slowly. <laughs> Hopefully very sometime cool. I'll finish it. Very but yeah, cool. so I just started kind of submitting my own work and kind of writing and drawing along with my students, you know, again, that class is a two hour and 45 minute studio art class. Sure. So, you know, we'd write, we'd talk, and then we give us, give everybody time to work on their stuff. And I would sit and draw and I'd work with my students and, you know, they were drawing, I was drawing, Cole was drawing. And I miss that space of just that room where we're all just sitting and drawing and writing and talking. But it was very, it was just energizing. And like you said, I am always so energized anytime I'm learning about something. And right. so I just love teaching that class because when Cole was talking, I was the student. And then I was like learning to teach, you know, and then I was learning how to do it. Great. So, yeah, I, it's really kind of opened up this whole new thing. And then I'm really proud to say that we just this fall started offering a full sequential art track in the Department of Art and Design. So it's one of the few bachelor's programs. Like you said, it's very it's kind of niche. You see a lot more programs on the master's level in sequential art, but not sure. so much on the undergraduate. Right. So. 
we offer a, a Bachelor of Fine Arts with a sequential art track. And then our students in the English department, if they want to be English majors, they can get a certificate in graphic narrative that can show that they have, you know, this extra sort of, of skill set. Yeah. No, that's yeah. mm-hmm. that interdisciplinary element. Uh, again, it's like we think that writing is disconnected from the rest of the world and everything. Well, no, yeah. it's, it's intertwined with all that shit, you know, like it I remember. Is. Yes. I, I remember taking um, in undergrad once I started taking the creative writing classes and things start to kind of go well and professor kind of realizes I'm serious and things like this. Uh, I was like a senior and he's like, hey, I got this graduate level class uh, we put together. It's interdisciplinary. We want half writers and half composers from the music department, and you guys oh, are going to write cool. libretto. You guys going to write opera. You want to do it, and I and I, and he was wanting to throw me into a serious environment with like people like older than me, more you know, like more serious than what was going on in the undergrad class. I was like, yeah, I'll do it, you know. Yeah. And, and it was just a, a really great experience. That okay, well, we're writing, and then okay, two of y'all will pair up with this composer, and then put music to our stuff and collaborate. It was amazing. Yeah, not the visual art thing, but again, the wow. interdisciplinary element of like, oh, like the literature I've studied studied and the stuff I've jotted down like can go over here now? That's like another place yeah. for it? That was really eye-opening for me. And, and again, one of the really cool experiences that put me on that path to be like, okay, I do need to be around people at the graduate level that I'm only taking stuff that's, English related and writing related, you know. Um, yeah. Um, I want to come yeah. to one specific piece that you. It's why I reached out to you. I mean, I only invite people uh, on this podcast that are better writers than me, and so. Oh my god! Gonna, like, I literally <laughs> like otherwise again because I have to be like I have to learn something while I'm providing this to my audience, and so. Uh, I selfishly invite you. So, Jennifer, uh, you had this piece called Lifeguard. It's a graphic piece in Anomaly. It's a beautiful little piece, man. Thank you. Uh, Thank you so much. And I have a I have a lot of thoughts on it, but but I want you to tell me a little bit about a little bit about that piece. Uh, I, I think it's super dope. Um, tell me a little bit about Thank that. Thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah, I I had kind of written written that little short story. It's a little flash story a long time ago. And when I was looking for just different things I could maybe try out in graphic narrative, that one stood out to me um, as one that might be fun and interesting to do visually too. And the drawings are from sort of different places around home. Um, I grew up in Southern California and my dad um, was born and raised in Long Beach and would always tell sort of, you know, stories about going out and swimming in the morning. And so, you know, I sort of took a lot of creative liberties, sure, <laughs> but I sort of always imagined like my dad going out swimming, you know, in the morning before school and, you know, back in the the 60s, Long Beach was a little bit different than it is now. <laughs> So, yeah, I don't know. And my my grandmother, you know, was sort of the inspiration for this. She's kind of a she was kind of a feisty person mm-hmm. and uh, always kind of had an, an attitude, you know. So it's all very fictional, but kind of inspired by some nonfictional things. And so and, and so that brings up. Um, yeah, that's one of those things, you know, you 
People ask, well, is this autobiographical? You hear, you hear that at a, at a reading and some at the Q&A, and I just roll right? my eyes, oh, here we go again. Um, because it's right. like, well, everything is part of me. What are you talking about? I wrote it. Of course yeah. it's, it's part of me. But it's like, okay, well, I took this little moment or this character, this yeah. voice, uh, grandma, or, or fictionalize it, all this stuff. But what remains yeah. real and true, and you brought it up, was place. And Santa Ana, the valley, mm-hmm. as it were. Right. Um, yeah. We, we I grew it, up we, in Simi Valley. Right. We, we, yeah, okay. So, yeah, exactly. And so I, I, yeah. I hear Valley, I think Texas, Rio Grande Valley, because that's our thing. And so, oh, and so yeah. I know that the Valley is a place. I'm aware of it even just from, I mean, I saw it in, in this piece and then also in the tremendous piece, fucking powerful piece in a diagram, uh, Your Mom is Hot, oh, that piece is great. You. And that the Santa Ana thing and that the place thing comes through all that other really great stuff that and and but I'm like there's this really underlying strength and foundation of place in this graphic little piece and then this very personal uh, piece from diagram. Thank you for saying that. What about yeah. place? What about place and writing and that stuff? I think to me, place is culture, and culture is everything. So you know, to me. It's, it's everything, you know? <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, and there are things that, you know, culturally are, are tied to place, like very specifically. 100%. Um, and being somebody that, you know, grew up in sort of this very particular place in California, all my family was like diehard Californians. You know, my grandmother came from Wisconsin. She was one of 10 kids came out to San Francisco when she was 17 and swore never to go back to Wisconsin. I mean, that woman was the most in love person with California I've ever seen. (laughs) She just loved it. Uh, She'd never go back, never go back to Wisconsin. Um, And then I moved, you know, I moved to Missouri. And so my relationship with California changed and I feel like coming and going from there, I had more of an awareness of, what I was noticing and differences. And so sort of almost moving away made me see it more clearly. My sister pointed out to me the other day that I've been in Missouri now an equal amount of time than I lived in California. And I was sort of like, didn't quite know what to do with that information because I still very much consider myself a Californian, but I live and work and raise my child in the Ozarks. So that was something that I kind of funneled into my Midwest A. Yeah, no, <laughs> my I, little short piece for Essay Daily too. No, that Midwest A was was super cool, and I love that it was about your Thanks. students. That's really cool. Um, yeah, yeah. The idea of place and and leaving home, the place that you call home, not where you were born, yeah. the place you call home for whatever reason, like you, you know. And yeah, and I'm Texas boy, and I end yeah. up in in Utah, and <laughs> you know, even not even le- leaving. Texas, but leaving El Paso, far west Texas, yeah. right? And then going to central Texas. That's a, a world away with a different culture and everything. I yes. remember one of my one, one of my friends read some of my stories and, and they all take place in Texas and, and stuff. And I'm like, yeah, I write a lot about this and that, whatever. At one point he says, and they all take place in different cities. And, and I'm doing like air quotes right now. But he <laughs> says, he tells me, and he's not from El Paso. He goes, but aren't they all El Paso? And I'm like, mm. yes, you're right. You're right. Yeah. And I was just like almost weirdly <laughs> trying to resist. It's just the name I changed. But it's like you're writing about right. home, dude. Like what are you doing? And and there's a reason for that because home's important to me and the culture and, and leaving 
gave me that lens to see what maybe was right under my nose for years. Oh, that's exactly, yes, you put it perfectly right there. And I also enjoy writing about California because I miss it. And so writing about it allows me to spend time there, you know, think about my family, who I miss all the time. So, yeah, it's almost like writing about California just makes me feel a little closer to home, too. I mean, even the things that aren't great about it, you know, um, just spending time with it. Yeah. Part of the the move to Missouri ends up with you being a business owner and having a yeah. bookstore, an independent bookstore. Tell me, yeah. tell me about pagination. Uh, what was the impetus for that bookstore? What kind of started that whole project? That's awesome. I'm curious. Yeah. Thank you so much. I I am really proud of pagination. I. <laughs> Honestly, I I did not think through it very carefully <laughs> at all. It was very impulsive. I tend to sort of like get really passionate and excited about something. And once I'm like in it, I throw myself in it a million percent. So I don't know if that's good or bad, but it just is sort of kind of what I've done. So I just, you know, my fiance and I, uh, Coop, who's my partner in the shop too, we had gone to see uh, George Saunders up in St. Louis and we had gone to like left bank books and, you know, we just had so much fun. We went to subterranean books and just did like our book tour oh, a bunch and of nerds, had a great man. time. Oh, we're <laughs> such, such nerds. It's like the best, it was great. you know, spend all the money we don't have and suitcase space we don't have on books. So, you know, we came home and Springfield is a great little town. Like we're a college town. We're about a hundred 80,000 people in like city proper, you know, it's a, it's a big college town, Missouri States, you know, 28,000 people. It's a big place. And we have a lot of bookstores in town, but they're mostly used bookstores. So our one new bookstore is Barnes and Noble. And so, you know, Coop and I were like, man, it's a shame we don't have something like left bank books here, you know? And I was like, why don't we start one? And so we just kind of like, we're talking about it in kind of this hypothetical way. And then sort of, I drove by this old, old historic home on Walnut street, which is kind of the downtown historic area in Springfield. There's a lot of like great restaurants and bars and like bed and breakfasts, and, you know, and they're all of them on this particular part of the street are businesses housed in these old historic homes. And so this, of course, Spanish mission style, super California looking house oh, cool. came up on the market and, you know, it's like stucco. It just had all the, it just had everything that sort of spoke to me for home. Nice. And um, I walked in and it had this big open room and I was like, this is, this is perfect. And of course I had no idea what I was getting into <laughs> at all. I had no idea we we're going to have to spend nine months renovating the house to get oh, it up boy. to a commercial code. I learned a lot about <laughs> contractors and permits and all that. So it was sort of like the idea came before the passion, you know, came before all the practical stuff. But thankfully, we were able to pull it off. Um, we definitely opened way later than I planned. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I just it was a something that I thought was an extension of my life as a reader, bookstores have always been my first place I go when I visit anywhere. They're my happy place. 
bookstores and libraries always have been. And uh, it's so much fun. I wanted to have a place, part of my love of River Pretty, the writing retreat, is that it's open to everybody. And so I wanted to recreate that in Springfield because there are so many people that want to write, but aren't in like, like you said, like this academic setting of a classroom. And so I thought my shop could be a place where that could happen. We could have book clubs, we could have open mic nights, and it's open to everyone who wants to just be creative. So I'm missing that with the pandemic because we can't really have events, but um yeah, that was one of my questions. We're going to go back to it. Yeah, that was one of my questions. Yeah. And and I, and, I, and it's great that it's a it's a bookstore. You can grab your books and stuff and, and skip um, Scamazon, right, and get them from you. Yes, um, <laughs> so but, important. <laughs> yeah, you know, but uh, you also provide the space for yeah. readers and writers to do their thing, you know, open mic nights, readings, and things like this. But COVID has changed that. How else has it changed, like, business? There's a lot more, like – online ordering versus people coming into the shop, which is definitely preferred and safe way of doing things. I find myself communicating a lot more with my customers and readers, like on Facebook messenger, Instagram more than before, you know, where I would see everybody at least once a month at book club or once a month that we would have a poetry discussion and open mic night. So we'd always pick a poet, we just, we do handouts and discuss the poems for like a half an hour to 45 minutes. And then we would have our poetry open mic night or whatever anybody wanted to read. It wasn't just poetry. People could sing songs or whatever they wanted to do. But yeah, so a lot of it's moved online. We've of course pivoted some of our author events online. So we've had, you know, virtual events. I just, I'm really ready to go back to being in person. I do want to keep an online component. Like where if an author comes into the shop, I will zoom it because I really don't want to lose that accessibility. That's something I have loved as a reader. There's so many more readings I can attend now because oh, they're yeah. on Zoom. Oh yeah. So I definitely want to keep that, but also have the in-person component. So we're going to try our first in-person event that we have scheduled tentatively is in the end of April and it's going to be an outdoor reading. Cool. So we're going to sort of see how that goes. Okay. We have a big backyard, so we're going to have, like, picnic blankets and have the reader sort of up on, like, a little, like, wooden, you know, sure. short, like, little thing, but kind of elevate her sure, a bit sure. with a mic, and then everyone will have picnic blankets and sort of be out in the yard. Oh, that's such a cool image. Yeah, yeah, that's dope. Yeah, um, I love it. It's, it's, uh, talk about being a novice. I am, even after, gosh, this nine months of, like, doing the house, remodeling the whole thing, and then like running a bookstore for a year. And then the pandemic where you're sort of pivoting to online. I am so grateful. Indie booksellers are the most generous human beings on the planet. My indie booksellers group on Facebook is like, they're just, it's like a family and they just want everybody to succeed because we are all so passionate about books. That's awesome. So Uh, it's a good, it's a good place to be when you're struggling because you're struggling with, you know, other great passionate people. <laughs> <laughs> um, one of the ways I think that was cool uh, that I saw on the pagination website was that you were very deliberate about supporting local people uh, through yeah. the artwork inside, graphic designers, getting the furniture from a local uh, a local shop, those kinds of yeah. things. Why? Tell me a little bit about that. Like, why? You know, you could have just furnished the place with like Ikea and Target, right? Like, why not? 
Well, full our bookshelves are from Ikea. <laughs> <laughs> Whose aren't, though, at the end of the day, really? Um, yeah. But tell me, but that, I think that's yeah. great, though, that, that really to be like, okay, well, we're a local place. We're, we're going to be local. Yeah. What And so how, and yeah. I, I could seem very deliberate. We definitely were. Like, I love to thrift. I love local shops. Um, there's a beautiful furniture store right down the street from our shop on Walnut um, called Cricket in the House, where we got a lot of furniture from there. I just felt like I wanted it to be personal. I wanted it to be different and unique. My student, Ariel Messer, who's a beautiful illustrator who I had in my comics class, she did all this muraling in the house. I mean, it's stunning. She spent probably two months just up on the ladder, you know, doing this beautiful muraling. And then um, my dear friend Cole, who I mentioned earlier, who I teach comics with as a gift to us, uh, designed our logo. And it's, he's an incredible illustrator and, you know, he does this gorgeous lettering and it looks like this kind of old timey. It's, it was perfect. When I, we saw it, I cried. I mean, it's just gorgeous. And so Ariel, you know, on the back of our shop, there were two, I mean, I tell you this, this house was made for a bookstore. It was just, there were two open kind of panels in this built-in woodwork on the ceiling and pagination bookshop. It's perfect. Perfect. It was like, we couldn't have planned it. I mean, it just was sort of meant to be. Um, And then I had, when we first opened, I had an Airbnb upstairs because there's a beautiful upstairs area that's like three bedrooms, a living room, a kitchen, and two and a half baths. It's a huge house. And so I had it as a um, sleep above a bookshop was our Airbnb, but it was just kind of too much to do. And now I, um, I'm glad I kind of transitioned away from that (laughs) uh, with the pandemic. Um, But now I house, uh, we have three other female owned small businesses upstairs. And so the whole building is just female owned small businesses and it's, it's a great energy. So yeah, like we have a local, uh, Ariel does some of our cards. We also have a local artist, Doug Herb, that does some of our cards. So anything I can do locally, I do. That's awesome. I also, I think it's great that, yeah, you got like independent women business owners there. Yeah. Uh, my, my sister, yeah. my sister's one. And I know again, oh, cool. uh, being a business owner and being a woman, you have to be, you have to be a hustler and you gotta, yeah. you can't take shit and everything like that. And, and, uh, that's yeah. the only way you make it, unfortunately. And she, uh, yeah. uh so seeing that and, and how hard it is to start a, a little business and all this stuff, but that also yeah. you lean on maybe the people that you trust and that you like and want to support and, Hey, I have this artist paint some stuff. Yeah. A friend of mine's hooking me up the, our logo. Those kinds of things, like my my awesome badass logo for this podcast. That, that was my my sister's, you know, friend and graphic designer that did her work. And, it's and he, awesome. He, he, he I barely love charged the logo. me. He barely charged me. It was criminal how cheap I got the deal. Um, oh. and because he's quite talented. But that's yeah. you know, he was like, okay, like I'm I'm doing this because I love you, and I'm like, all right, yeah. dude, thank you. And I just have to pay it forward. That's all we can do when we get those uh, yes, people throwing 100%. you a bone. It's like, oh, all I got to do is, is hook somebody up later, you know? Yeah. That's, I think that's absolutely key. And it's, you know, we have a great, we have great local authors here. Like the Ozarks is a really interesting place for literature and art and music. And we're part of the art walk that happens downtown. And so we will feature, we had a great photographer, you know, we had his stuff up in the shop for a month and he did like a guest talk about his photography. I mean, it's just, it's so much fun. I really do miss that aspect of it. I can't wait to get back to it. 
I, when I envision the bookstore, you know, bookstores are so much more than just a place to buy books, as you said, like it's a place to gather and talk about books. And like, again, I always go back to like how much kids just inspire me so much, but like kids will just run into our kids book room and they'll like pull all the books off the shelf and they'll just put them out on the floor and like, they just own the space. And it's like, read me this, read me this, read me this. And they'll come show me their books. And I just love it. And to have a space where that can happen is, you know, and libraries of course are always the place where that can happen too. Sure. But I just love that there's like another little place that they, you know, they can call like their book home home or whatever. They bring their little tote bags. Yeah. Yeah. It's so much fun. No, and it just, just, I can't imagine. (laughs) And I, I I spent time in like libraries or crawling around and looking at the books at the Barnes and Noble. My parents are taking stuff like this, but, but the, like the library, it's like, well, that's a, that's a government building. Like yeah. you're you, you're in a cool home that feels homey and artsy. This is so yeah. cool. It's awesome. Yeah, it is a home, and that was something I really wanted to do. I wanted to have it in a house, and I have ideas. Sort of, we have a big carriage. So the house was built in 1905, and then the carriage house behind the house was built in 1901. And so that's going to be a whole other renovation (laughs) project. But I do have sort of the long-term goal of renovating that into like um, a venue for like book, like separate book clubs or writing like little writing um, workshops for sure or kids' birthday parties or something like that. Yeah. We actually have this really amazing little closet under the stairs um, that we used to have as the Harry Harry Potter cupboard under the stairs, but now we've, um, we've remade it into a hobbit hole and it's all Lord of the Rings themed. And so like you walk in and it's just kind of this magical little nook and kids will just go in there and close the door. (laughs) So cool. Like this is my space now. And the parents are like, time to go guys. (laughs) That's so cool. You make it it that welcoming and that their environment is just as enriching as the words on those pages. That's awesome. Oh, I hope so. That's my hope. It's really fun. And my, you know, I, since Coop, my, Coop and I both work full time, you know, our, our person at the shop is Shane, um, who is my former student. He actually cool. um, graduated with his master's from the English department at Missouri State. And so it's so fun to like, have my student who is such an incredible writer and reader himself, like, uh, running this shop day to day. He's so great. And he's so invested in the store and in what we do. And so it's just, it's like a family there. Good. You know, he calls it team pagination, which I just absolutely love. <laughs> so whenever we have like a drop, like a something bad happen or something good happen, you know, it's like team pagination. <laughs> but yeah. So it, it does feel like a family place and, you know, this is a small, large town. So whenever I do work the shop on Sundays, you know, or whenever I come in, like I always see someone I know and it's, yeah. it's really fun, especially these days where you don't really see anybody. <laughs> oh yeah. That's great. Yeah. Cool. Awesome. Great. Yeah. And so what I kind of want to wrap up with here now is, uh, since it's the writers and fighters podcast and you are a writer, I'll invert this question here at the end. Uh, have you ever done any like fight training? Are you a fan of any like combat sports? I know we're talking about books and art and reading and whatnot, but uh, I'm always curious. You know, I I have I've listened to your past podcast. How dare and, you? Yeah, I was <laughs> like, I cannot. I just know I have never done anything like that. I um, my grandfather. So I grew up with my grandfather living with us 
from when I was six until he passed away until I was a senior in high school. And um, he was a huge boxing fan. And so I always grew up sort of whenever I would go out because he lived in a like a small guest house that he and my parents built in our backyard and every day I would go out and walk to see Papa and I would just sit on the couch and we'd like, you know, have me get him a drink. And then we'd just sit and we'd watch boxing. <laughs> but could I tell you like who we were watching or what we were doing? No, but it's, but whenever I, whenever I hear box, like people talking about boxing, it just takes me right back to that time with my Papa in the backyard it's and great. like he would just yellow the TV. It was always on. It was like just kind of his background and he'd oh, get yeah. so invested. And I, you know, I asked my dad last night, I was like, Dad, I'm gonna be on this podcast. There's a question about <laughs> fighters, like, who is Papa's favorite boxer? And he, <laughs> you know, we ended up having like this really great little exchange about <laughs> my grandfather. And dad was like, you know, how much do you want to know? I was like, I don't know. But it was kind of this great, we just talked about Papa a little bit last night. So thank you for that question because I've been thinking about him a lot because actually the last poem that I wrote for my poetry class I'm taking was kind of about a moment with my grandfather in his house and there's boxing going on on the TV in the background. Holy shit, that's phenomenal. That's great. That's great. Yeah. So I wish I knew more could I mean, now after listening to your several of your podcasts, I feel like I'm missing out on this whole exciting world and really <laughs> cool people, like really cool people. Oh, it, it, so. I've been I've been uh, uh, fortunate in that uh, the folks I get on are are just really just cool, sharp. They're so cool. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just like so cool. I, yeah, uh, and so and, and you know because this podcast, it's like you know I I do reach out to friends that I know. But I also yeah. read out, reach out to acquaintances like you, and then I reach out yeah. to strangers, you know. And the fighters I reach out to are, are are quite happy and explain a world that not a lot of people are plugged into, right? Even me, right. I was never competitive, competitive. Like that's a different freaking level. I was a kid and I was training in martial arts gyms. You know, that's different. That's completely different. And so yeah. it's been, you know, as a fight fan, even there when I'm, it's been part of my life forever. I sit and I'm listening, and again, it's like I'm a beginner. You have so much to teach me. Yeah. Um, but to your and point, they're so ahead. open about their stories and like so honest about their process and their journey. Like I really have enjoyed listening, and that, yeah, I feel like this is such an incredible world. It, I think it's cool that again you think that hey, I don't know about boxing, not too aware or plugged into it. Yeah. But there's a very real connection there with Grandpa yeah. that. Very and again, pro- and, I'm, and I'm just guessing ages and stuff. He was probably when, like, they were showing boxing on network television. Like, you could watch it on normal oh. TV instead of HBO or spend $100 to order it or whatever. That it just came 100%, on TV. yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was just on. Yeah. And sometimes he would, like, buy a fight. Like, I remember, big one, like, yeah. my uncle would come over and, like, my dad and my papa and my uncle would, like, watch a fight that they had bought. And it was kind of, like, a big event when they would do sure. that. Like, they come into the main house. <laughs> Right, right. Yeah, we need the bigger TV now. Yeah, we need the bigger TV for the fight. But yeah, and so like it was just kind of, I I wasn't, I don't know why I wasn't so plugged in or aware. I was sort of like floating, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. through the world. But yeah, I was always, and I just, I always connect him to that. And it's always a part of it. And I, yeah, it was, it's a very, it was neat to sort of chat with my dad for a sec about that last no, night. No, it's cool. <laughs> Again, because it's yeah. a very cultural thing. And then in, 
in California specifically, like there's there's a mm-hmm. lot of great boxers that come out of there, uh, great yeah. gyms, things like that. So so that's yeah. not surprising that if you all were there, the time, the you know, old school grandpa masculine like that's that's the thing oh yeah he was super old school yeah he like rode his motorcycle oh yeah (laughs) did the planet gm every Uh, every day of my dad was growing up that's great see i I almost mentioned and i I, I was i was wrong though because when you said springfield and i thought i'm a motorcycle guy i was like indian motorcycles are made in springfield i was like oh no but massachusetts not missouri yeah different springfield. <laughs> different springfield i was like oh, i don't even know my my motorcycle history but it's not a motorcycle <laughs> podcast so it's okay yeah uh, <laughs> all right jen i enjoyed this uh oh thank you so much I, me too this was so great thank you i admire you as a writer I uh, want you to keep oh, on gosh, right back going. At you. I want you going uh, upwards and onwards. Tell the folks listening how they can find you and the bookstore. Yeah, what kind of social media plugs you got? Oh, sure. We're everywhere. So just, and fortunately, Pagination Bookshop is kind of a unique name. So if you just Google Pagination Bookshop, you'll find us. Um, but yeah, we're on Facebook, we're on Instagram, we're on Twitter. And then I have, my website is just jennifermervin.com and I have a link to the shop (laughs) on my website too. So yeah, find me on social media. I, I really love social media. It's been, it's been so helpful and it's a great community in so many ways, especially in these last, you know, several months I've, I've just found it so such a wonderful way to connect to readers. And, um, I've been very, really grateful for, I mean, social media has a lot of terrible things about it too sure, but sure. if you can take advantage of the good things it can be very good so yeah i hope i hope people reach out to us at pagination that would be awesome no yeah definitely we will direct people to your website and to Thank the bookstore you. all over social media and hopefully sell some books yeah and we'll redirect we'll redirect back to your podcast too this is such an amazing project i love it and i've really enjoyed listening to the episodes and i I'm just so grateful you asked me to be on it. So thank you. This was lovely. I know. I appreciate it. So yeah, get some more stuff done and everything. We'll have you back on. Thank you. Yeah. All right. (laughs) You take care. All right. Take care. Thanks. All right. Thank you, podcast audience, for listening to that awesome interview. If you want to keep up with Jennifer Mervin and her writing, you can read more of that through her website, www.jennifermervin.com. Go check out the bookshop online. They got an online store, paginationbookshop.com. Pagination Bookshop is also on Twitter, Pagination Books on Twitter, Pagination Books on Twitter. Over on Facebook and Instagram, it's Pagination Bookshop. On Facebook and Instagram, Pagination Bookshop. If you want to keep up with the podcast, it's writersandfighters.com. If you want to keep up with my stuff, ajortega.net. Make sure you follow us on social media. Stay tuned for next week's episode. Next week's episode, I got... Somebody from the fight world, a talented friend of mine, a pro wrestling videographer, my cameraman buddy, TJ Corison, next week. All right, y'all. I enjoyed this one. Keep listening. And I'll keep 
podcasting the pods. Be good, be safe, take care of each other.